morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to the book of Galatians. Today we're going to continue our journey going verse by verse through this book, as is our custom. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 29. And this is God's word. And his people should hear it and receive it as such. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we come here this morning with many hats worn throughout our week. Lord, we come here as men and women and children who bear different responsibilities, different callings, and yet because of our Savior, our brother, Jesus Christ, we share in the unity of the saints and in the unity and fellowship of God Most High. So God, we ask that you would come, condescend to meet with us this morning, draw near to us, that we would hear your voice, that we would see your actions, that we would experience your mercy and righteousness that we would be refreshed and renewed in the rightful awe that you have made yourself known to us. We give you thanks in advance. In the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people agree. Amen. Amen. As we journey through this letter, we remember every week that this is about the gospel of grace and freedom. This is the theme of the entire letter. It is the purpose behind which the Apostle Paul writes this letter, that we as his people, God's people, would remember, would mature in this idea that the gospel is not about what you do for God. The one true gospel 
is about what God in Christ has done for us. And so as we saw last week, as we began to explore the the centrality and issue of our personal identity, what does it mean for us to understand who we are in the world that we live in? When were we born in this timeline and master plan of redemption? Who are we? Most of the time in our culture, when we ask and answer that question, we fixate on our individuality. Often in our Western culture in this day, we think about self-determination. We think about a definition of freedom that the Bible opposes. That you're free to do whatever you want, whenever you want. Most people in our day would think that is freedom. The Bible calls it slavery. Slavery to sin. Slavery to self. One of the questions you can ask in your evaluation of your maturity in Christ is, do I do contrary to my desire? Can I desire one thing and choose another? A regenerate heart matures in that dynamic. So as we see ourselves, we probably don't recognize ourselves in the juxtaposition between Jew and Greek or between slave and free. We might spend a significant amount of time examining what it means to be male and female. Seems like our study of gender remains. Living in a world that wants to remove those two glories with some androgynous vision of the future. But Paul says these realities are lesser. They're lesser because the great joy of our lives, the great purpose of our lives is found in our union with Jesus Christ. We see that as God is unfolding his plan of redemption, he does so through the promise offered in the Garden of Eden, the promise that blessed and you know, led Noah through the survival of a pandemic beyond measure, and the promise spoken to Abraham centuries before the law was given. So as Paul is unfolding this understanding for us and for them, he wants the churches in Galatia, he wants us to understand that our status before a holy God is not founded on our disobedience. We think about our relation to our parents. We think about our relation to a potential or current spouse. We think about our relationships with our children, with our coworkers, classmates. But the most important relationship is the one least discussed. Our relationship with God. 
How easy is it to forget that we have a relationship with God? How incredible that the creator of all things makes himself known to us. And that we could, as Jesus teaches us, call him Father. The Apostle Paul has given us a sort of governing metaphor to understand what's happened in Israel and what's happening in us as the church. And that is that the law given is a guardian. Gives two primary metaphors, right? The guardian who is the warden or the imprisoner holds us in prison under special guard as it were, and the one of a pedagogue. We don't really talk about that, but it's the idea of the disciplinarian in their Greek culture. So we've seen this and we've discussed it now for a few weeks, but Paul's going to build and develop this idea by leading us back to thinking about the guardianship that Israel has been under in seeking and being held by God's law. So this is where we pick up at the very end of 29. We begin in 29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Notice... Our sonship is found not in our performance, but in God's promise. This is the great challenge to any pharisaical legalism. We are heirs by promise. So what does he mean by this? Well, he continues in chapter 4, verse 1. I mean that the heir as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. When we consider what it means to be heirs according to promise, it's not just that Abraham's blessings become our blessings. It's also true that because of Christ, we move in status from slaves to sons. The bond servants become the sons who inherit. In Greek civil law, back in their day, a wealthy man gave his sons over to the care of guardians. In other words, the eldest son knew he would inherit his father's estate, but as a child, he does not own it yet. You guys, if you grow up, you begin to set up a will and testament or perhaps a trust for what is to be done with you and your life. The older you get, you tend to spend some time with a lawyer to talk about end-of-life care, where and when, what procedure should be done, and At what point do you no longer want them to do extreme or any measures to save your life? To prolong your life, to push death back perhaps. 
But one of those things that you establish is if Liz and I, for example, died in a plane crash years ago, our kids would have to be raised, yes? And we would not be there to do it. It sounds so silly to say out loud, and yet it is a jarring thought the first time you think it. And so we enter into a process of expressing our wishes through legal means. So for us, we set up a trust that basically said we want to divide our assets for the girls, obviously, if somehow the four of us are all taken at the same time, then we would want the money to be distributed in this way or that way. And it's jarring, and you sort of, if you're anything like me, sort of feel like you're floating through that moment where you're like, wow, I'm a grown-up right now. I'm making grown-up decisions, doing grown-up things. I don't want to be an adult right now. I don't really like thinking through these things, but they need to be thought. It's part of maturity. It's part of the deliberate care and responsibility of growing up and being mature. But we also realize that you don't hand a 12-year-old the equity in a home, right? So you have to set times for the transfer, transfer excuse me, of this wealth. You have to say, when they're at 21, do this, or perhaps you prefer 25 or 40. Liz and I benefited early on in our marriage because her grandmother, Dagny, wonderfully had set aside some money. So when Liz aged to that point, we received a chunk of money that we could do with as we needed to or saw fit. This is our preparation for the transfer of wealth to our children. We also had to set up an executor, somebody who would be responsible to manage and care for what we had that was being given to them. We also had to decide on guardians, right? We had to say, in whose home are we going to place our children in our absence? If all four of us go, the mortgage and by grace would have been benefited a bit. But you have to make plans. You have to set limits. You have to arrange timetables. And you have to give power to trustworthy people to make decisions in your absence. So this is a modern-day version of these realities that Paul is referencing. It's this idea that the eldest son knew that he would inherit his father's estate, but he did not own it yet. Thinking about life and death and our girls and when we made our trusts and living will and all of that, it reminded me of a scene from an obscure Disney movie called The Lion King. I, I, I know you haven't heard of it, but there's a scene where Mufasa, the father figure, voiced by the great James Earl Jones, whose voice I totally covet. Every time I hear Vader or Mufasa, I break the 10th commandment. 
totally jealous of that deep, powerful. You get the idea. But there's a scene where he and his son Simba are up on the cliff's edge and they're surveying the kingdom together. Probably remember this if you've seen the movie. And the father is talking about leadership and rulership and what it means to reign and be king. And little Simba, of course, is elated with the idea that he gets to do whatever he wants whenever he wants. In fact, most of the mantras for that movie are very anti-biblical. Hakuna Matata means no worries. You have never lived the Christian life. If your assessment is that there are no worries. But in this cute scene, you see a father trying to teach his son what maturity looks like what it means to rule and reign, what it means that he will be responsible one day for all of the area that the light touches. Simba, of course, wanting to know the extent of his rule to come, is like, hey, what about all that shadowy place over there? And you can see and hear like a father saying to his son, no, 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 no. That, you don't go there. That's not ours. Don't indulge evil. Don't explore wickedness. You rule the light everywhere it touches. But it is clear in that moment that Mufasa has not released his kingship, yes? He's saying there will come a day where you will rule. But it is not yet this day. So here you see where all the light touches, yes, you will have privilege. Yes, you will be honored. Of course that's true. But you should focus on what you'll be responsible for. What are you entrusted to do? Because the kingdom rests on your shoulders. What you speak is what happens. That might sound better than it is experienced. So what does it mean here when Paul says that as long as this heir is a child, he's no different from a slave? Well, you have to remove chattel slavery from your thinking. That's not what's happening here. You're talking about a beloved bond servant, someone who lives in your household and works alongside the hired help. And because of circumstances chosen or pushed upon, you work for the benefit of the household. You serve the leader, the hero, the master, who was at one time not in charge. He was at one point an eldest son. So what does this son and this bondservant have in common? They don't have possession of the household they work in. That they are directed and guided into what to do and how to do it. See, the father's land belongs to another. 
despite having a relationship with the one who owns it, governs it, guides it, guards it, you are a servant growing up into maturity. And for the son, there will be a change, a change of status. And often for a bondservant, there would be a future change of status. Whether their time in service would come to a close or their freedom or, and, and right to be independent would be purchased by themselves or another. It's what we call redemption, right? That you are bought for a price. So the father's land belongs to the father. And by title, it belongs to the son in a future sense only. The son does not yet have actual possession. So it is in this way that Paul is comparing the eldest son to the bondservant. That there is a time of tutoring and guardianship that will come to an end. This is why we see in verse 2, but he's under guardians and managers. Is that forever? No. In the same way that our kids would have inherited our money in stages, at this age this, and at this age this, and of course, the executor can go against our wishes for the right purpose behind we, why and how we had structured our own trusts. So when we think about this language, that the child is an owner of everything, it's a little deceiving for us in our culture. Nobody has malicious intent in this translation. But it might be more accurate to say that this is Lord of all rather than owner of everything. In other words, and my Star Wars fans will appreciate this, it's probably better to think of this eldest son as a young master rather than an owner of everything. He will one day bear that responsibility. And now is a time of preparation. We live in such an instant-focused culture, don't we? Everything must be now. The oven improved into a microwave or a convection oven. You can boil oil in your kitchen with fancy devices. You can cook meat really slow. You can stick this wand in an entire tub of water with sealed bags of meat in it. And over time, you get some of the most delicious and tender meat. We can cook in all kinds of ways. And a good cook, like Jeremy over here, can prepare an incredible meal. Actually, as I look around the church, like virtually someone in every family can cook an incredible meal. Can we do a potluck soon? Let's put that on the calendar. I miss y'all's food. But there's a sense in which he's a young master. He will be one day head of this household. But for now, that time has not come. 
but the responsibilities are coming. In fact, one of the challenges for us in our own culture is the conversation around how do you launch your kids? How do you prepare them to leave your house? To go off on their own, to raise their own family. And there are times where we get to come alongside folks and say, maybe we haven't prepared this child enough yet. So let's make a plan and lay out some steps and be able to enter into this. It's not always a parent's fault. It's not always a child's fault if launching is a difficult thing. But it does require intentionality and careful development to turn a young master into a master, to turn a young man or a young woman into a man or a woman. So because the young master is given over to the care of guardians and managers, he would sometimes feel like a servant and not like a son. Do you understand what I'm saying? Sometimes you feel like a servant and not like a son. It's good to do chores, amen? I know I got lots of fans in here who can't wait for their parents to give them the next chore. Parents, look at all your children and see the big smiley grin they have as you entrust them with responsibilities they don't want. You guys know I love memes. My favorite all time. It's not even close. Picture a dog upside down on the back porch, just absolutely exhausted. Tongue hanging out, but it's too tired to actually wag the tongue. And the line and caption that captures my heart Please don't make me adult today. Have you known this feeling? Please don't make me adult today. Can I, I, I want to kid. In fact, all of my childhood punishments are my daily dreams. Send me to my room, check. Yeah, I can't, I'm grounded. I don't get to go anywhere. Check and check. No responsibilities, okay. Uh, what do I have to do? Nothing. You get nothing. A book? Okay, yeah, you can have a book. Hallelujah. Right? Think about it. All your childhood punishments are totally your adult dreams at times, in seasons. But when we think about Israel, part of what's happening in this first generation of the church is that the law of God has been a basic building block. But that the right time has come. The right moment in human history has arrived. This is what he's saying in verse 2. That, that Israel is under guardians and managers. Until when? Until the date set by his father. At just the right time, 
Jesus comes. Not too early and not too late, but at just the right time. In this way, Gandalf is like Jesus. He arrives exactly when he means to, yes? So in verse 3, this idea of guardianship presses forward. Speaking to pattern, Paul says, in the same way also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. These elementary principles. What he's speaking here is that the law of God given to Moses and given to Israel for centuries now, was to prepare them in a similar way as elementary school. How many of you liked elementary school? I liked it better than middle school. High school is a coin flip with middle school. College, better. After college, can I be a child again? No, we already talked about that. But to them, and here's a quote from one commentator. He says it like this. He says, to study the law is to learn the alphabet of God's will. To study the law is to learn the alphabet of God's will. I remember being a kid in kindergarten tracing the letters on the dotted page. Do you remember this? And then cursive was similar. Kids, there's this way of writing where the letters are connected. It's called cursive. Please learn it someday so you can read, I don't know, any old document that is, never mind. To study the law is to trace the letters. It's to learn the alphabet. It's to do two plus two equals. So that you can understand the world that God has made. You can understand the principles and responsibilities of life. See, for the Jewish community, this elementary principle is understood as referring to God's law. But if you skip down to verse 9, you'll see that the Gentiles too had elementary principles. But they weren't the law of God. They were the elements of pagan idolatry. Spirits of fire, earth, water, air. The pagan principles were forged and founded differently than the Jewish elementary principles. That's why this language here speaks specifically to elemental spirits. For the Jews, those elementary principles are God's law. It's grammar school. But for the Gentiles, they too sought to learn Elemental principles, elemental spirits. This is where we think of pagan religion and shamanism. Get to know Mother Earth. Get to learn how to use fire or water or air. 
So for the Gentiles, they were not enslaved by the law to become sons. They were enslaved in their pagan idolatry in service to a corrupted world. So God's people, Paul's teaching us, needed to grow up in maturity. To leave their servitude to the law and become spiritually mature as sons. In other words, leave their religious infancy behind and grow into full spiritual maturity. As a boy, I can remember my father saying, I can't wait for you to really interact with math. And I was like, Dad, I have math homework. And he was like, yeah, 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 but, but that's the, the numbers part of math. Real math is not about numbers, it's about letters. And I was like, Dad, that's called reading. So he longed for the day where I would learn all of the elementary principles of math that dealt with patterns and numbers, interactions. But that the real fun stuff was found not with numbers. But you needed that basis of numbers in order to do what he referred to, I would say prejudiciously, as real math. Math was real, trust me. I got in trouble for homework I didn't do. That was real. But it was also elementary. Once you hit trig and calc and beyond, math seems to teach you the opposite of what you've always known at times. Yes? Yeah, Abigail's got a big smile and nod. Hashtag Abigail approved. So their religious infancy needed to grow. Their understanding of these elementary principles needed to mature. And that's where the transition happens in verses 4 and 5. You see Paul say, when the fullness of time, at just this right time, they move from slavery, childhood, into sonship, maturity. And we can see this by the rapid fire presentation of these truths. It's this great summary of the gospel that it was at the right time, the father's designated time, that the son would receive the estate. And then it further continues. That God sent forth his son. This active verb. God sent his son. Who is Jesus? He's the sent son. In fact, one of the great joys of reading through the Last Supper discourse in John 13 to John 17 is that you see Jesus image this language. That in the same way that he was sent into the world, we 
are to be sent into the world, taken out, reborn from above, and sent back as missionaries, as reconcilers, not redeeming the culture ourselves, but speaking of the redemption secured by the Son of God. So it was at the right time, the time that the Father sent, God the Son was sent. Make sure you understand this as a teaching on the divinity of Christ. That he was not from inside the world, he was sent from outside the world into the world. There was a moment in time, in the time of the incarnation, when Mary was pregnant in her womb. It was when God added flesh to himself. The divine person becomes the divine and human person. This is the second member of the Godhead. This is a claim of divinity. And notice how simple. Paul doesn't get elaborate here. He views this perhaps as an elementary understanding of the gospel. That the divine becomes the divine and man. Equal in power, equal in glory. And that he was born of woman. This is the third thought. That he was born of woman. This means that not only is Jesus Christ divine, sent from heaven to earth, but that he was also born of woman. This is a statement of humanity. God became man to redeem mankind. To save people, he became a people. Not any people, a people of Israel. Listen to how the Westminster Shorter Confession, excuse me, Shorter Catechism says this. Question 22. How did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Answer. Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her, yet, it's a glorious yet, without sin. The new Adam, born of a woman and also born under the law. Jesus was not given to some tribe, any tribe. Not only is this at the right time, it's also at the right place, among the right people. This is an elaborate plan of God prepared before the foundation of the world to be unfolding in their day, in their midst, as it unfolds in ours. But Jesus was, as Paul says, born under the law. Meaning that Jesus Christ was born under the demands 
of the covenant of God. Remember, he's the smoking fire pot that passes through the pieces in Genesis 15. Jesus kept the whole law for his people. He was the perfectly obedient son. In other words, because Jesus was born under the law, he is the only one to secure the blessings of the covenant. All others under the law failed to uphold its demands. We've spent weeks on that. Jesus Christ is born under the law so that he can come out mature, perfectly obedient, securing all of the promised blessings for us. And that's where we get this fifth idea, redeem. So we've seen time, we've seen sent, we've seen born, born of woman, born under the law. He also comes, according to Paul, to redeem those who were under the law. Redeem means, of course, to buy back for a price. Most often in the form of a sacrifice given because a son is born. Or, even more likely, more often, to buy back a slave. To redeem them from their slavery. We saw this, of course, in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. This is redemption through penal sacrifice. This is redemption through atonement. Why do you have a right relationship with God? Because you are united to the obedient son the redeemer of God's people. Yes? So here we see Paul clustering together, timely arrival, eternal deity, true humanity, perfect obedience, and ultimate atonement, true and perfect atonement. Unto what result? Adoption. Adoption. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Adoption as sons. And then six, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. Imagine being the disciples on the eve of the crucifixion where Jesus is teaching them about their mission, about their calling, about how he will fuel them in the same way that grapes don't make themselves but they are attached as buds to something that is attached to something that is the root and source of life for all that it would produce. Jesus is the vine, and we are the branches, and the branches make grapes, fruit. Imagine being them 
and hearing that they're going to have some union and sourcing and fueling by Christ. At the same time, he tells them that he's going to go away. Right? Chapter 15 in John that we love is tied to and comes from chapter 14. There's a massive switch in the Gospel of John where Jesus is saying to his mother at the, at the wine drought, right? They didn't have enough wine at the wedding in Cana. And his mom's like, hey, guys, do whatever he says. And Jesus' immediate response to his mother is, my time has not yet come. He no longer says that on the eve of the crucifixion. Now is the hour of my glorification. At just the right time, he would do just the right thing. But imagine trying to put those two ideas. Hey, I'm going to go away, but you're going to get the comforter. I'm going to go away, but you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. Greek word there is paraclete. Not paracletes. Paraclete. The comforter. The counselor. I need a lawyer? Yeah. In the courtroom of heaven, you need the merits of one son. A son as a natural heir of his father. To be united to us that we would receive the family inheritance. But be the disciples trying to juggle all these thoughts. Jesus is going to go away so that you can have him. Right? And how many of you today, if I asked you, as I am asking you now, would you rather be indwelt with the Holy Spirit or would you rather have Jesus at your right hip? Speaking to you as a man. It's a dumb question. As if the Holy Spirit does not speak. We might grow deaf. We might deny his voice. We might denounce his instructions for a time. But Jesus continually echoes the chorus, it is better for you that I go. And if we're talking about the cross, we all agree. But if we're talking about you bodily going and living in heaven, I'd rather you were here. Catch Paul's language. Whose spirit do we have? Is it not the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, equal in divinity, equal in power, who functions to indwell us, that the union we have with God is not just a future thing, but a current reality? Paul is adamant here. That we are adopted and that he gives us his spirit. Whose spirit? Verse 6. 
the spirit of his son. This is not an elementary spirit. This is not an elementary principle. We are given the Holy Spirit of God into, not upon us. Why would God indwell with his people? Oh wait, that's the chorus of the whole Bible. That God would dwell with his people. And one day we will dwell in a place without sin. But we are not right now dwelling in a place without his spirit. The reformed community should talk about the Holy Spirit more. We should study him more. Not it. Holy Spirit, it's not an it. He is a he. And we have the same spirit living in us who cries out as Jesus did. Abba, Father. Verse 7, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. In other words, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is adoption? It answers, adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. We are adopted into his family. We are brothers and sisters with Christ. Listen to the words of the resurrected Christ in Matthew 28, verse 10. You thought I was going to give you a bigger number, didn't you? Matthew 28, verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, quote, These are the women who have come with spices and oils to deal with the body, the corpse that Jesus has left behind after his crucifixion. The body abandoned to the grave that never saw decay. The women are there, shocked as all were, that the resurrected Christ is speaking to them. But listen, he says to them, do not be afraid. I would need that. You who I watch die are now alive and talking to me. I would have much fear, confusion. And he says, go and tell whom? Who? Who? My brothers. Jesus knows that because he came at the right time for the entire purpose and mission of God, that we are his brothers and sisters. Based upon what? Based upon the life, death, and resurrection of our elder brother, Jesus Christ. Notice that Paul is teaching about all three members of the triune God. The Father sending the Son securing, granting us the status of sonship. And the Holy Spirit assuring us, granting us the experience of sonship. All three members of the Godhead at work to bring about our adoption. That we would live and love in his family and no other, that we would grow into the fullness of maturity, 
not just individually, but life under the law is for children held guardian in elementary school learning the basic principles of the world that God has made of the way to live and love as citizens in his kingdom wherever the light touches and as sons heirs according to promise not performance all based on the covenant obedience of the only righteous son. And being in awe that what belongs to Jesus Christ by his obedience and perfections becomes ours as we move from bondservants to sons of God most high. Amen? Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would teach us more and more and more and grow us in grace, grow us in affection for the work that you are doing in us and that you have called and happened through us. God, we are awed to be your sons. Lord, lead us from shame and guilt Grant us repentance, give us faith, restore to us the joy of salvation in your name, and teach us, O oh Lord, teach us, O oh Lord, the freedom and joy of the gospel and the beauty and power of your work in us and through us. Lord, may the gospel be wondrous to us today and every day. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, the one born of a woman, born under the law, who comes at the right time to redeem your people. And we are awed to be counted among that number. We give you thanks and praise in his name. And all God's people agree.